All right, well, um, we're going to have a lot of Bible verses today, but they are going to be projected for you. You can try and keep up with me, but your hand is going to hurt if you do. So you might just want to jot down the places that we go in God's Word. This is an apologetic series, and it's different. You may have never been a part of an apologetic series before. It's not intended to give us as Christians more knowledge. It's actually intended to help us use what we already know to have great spiritual conversations with those around us. My premise is this. We're really not that good at talking about things with other people today. And the more intense and controversial the topic, the worse we are at talking. Either we avoid the conversation altogether, or we start saying awkward, obnoxious things that hurt people's feelings. Let's improve on having conversations about spiritual topics. That's the goal. So far, we have talked about topics like, don't all religions teach the same thing? Uh, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I want to be one? I'm a good person. Why do I need Jesus? Uh, we've, and then we even talked one week about, why do I need your old mythical book? You know, why would I even believe the Bible today? So all those sermons are available online or on our app if you want to check them out. Today the topic is this, science disproves God. <clears throat> science disproves God. And this, this objection to our faith will come in many forms. The bottom line is this, if you're having a conversation about God or religion or spiritual things and someone plays this card, well, science, well, technology, well, reason, well, advancement just disproves God or makes God unnecessary, the conversation is over unless you know what to say next. Sure, you can go on and on about some dead guy who rose from the grave. They don't care. Science has disproved God. That was a mythical religious age where people didn't know much. Today, we've put a man on the moon, and better, we're planning to colonize Mars. Why do we need to go back in time? There's a lot of different ways this uh, objection can come about, but I've distilled it in this just this science disproves God. Um, what do we say when people are trying to say, because we have science, we do not need God? Sometimes this takes a non-aggressive, inquisitive form. Well, people truly just want knowledge to be factual, and they don't really have any emotional beef with God. They just think truth is truth, and why do we need faith? Other times, and I would say more often than not, there's an edge to it. It's a bias. They have a bias against the idea of God. It's not just that they favor science. It's they, that they are really against the idea of faith altogether. We're going to prepare for both conversations, but I am going to tilt it a little bit more toward getting you ready for someone who's not just going to say science disproves God, but they're going to have some energy behind it. They are going to kind of maybe make you feel like a fool for even thinking there is a God. Let me share some quotes from people in the scientific world that they kind of like in their own words express how they feel about science and faith. Bertrand Russell said this, I'm as firmly convinced that religions do harm as I am that they are untrue. He wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. Do you see the two things? Religions do harm and they are untrue. For a lot of people who would favor the scientific world over religion, they have this feeling that religion is not just untrue but harmful. And Bertrand Russell expressed basically Christianity is incompatible with and hostile to the progress and flourishing of humanity. What about Steven Weinberg? Steven Weinberg says this, the world needs to wake up from the long nightmare of religion. Long nightmare of religion. There's not just a physical goal in, in what he does, his work, and he's not just using his voice to tilt you toward the science. He's saying religion was a nightmare. Christopher Hitchens says this, religion poisons everything. Religion poisons everything. Some people, though, take a more even-handed approach, and they incorporate naturally the idea of God and the idea of science. 
Uh, in um, Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, Carl Sagan wrote the introduction, and here's what he said, the foreword. He said, Hawking is attempting, as he explicitly states, to understand the mind of God. And he talks freely throughout his book about the idea and concept of God and how that ties into his understanding uh, as, as a scientist. Uh, physicist John Polkinghorne, who was also an Anglican priest, said this, science and religion are friends, not foes, in the common quest for knowledge. So science, does it disprove God if I have faith? Can I also have reason? If I pick reason, do I have to let go of religion? Hey, that's where we're going today. Let's pray, because we're going to need it. Thank you, Jesus, for helping us to understand the world around us. And in your word today, I pray that we would see that the Bible is absolutely as relevant today, if not more so, than the day in which it was written. Because we need an understanding of understanding. We need knowledge of where knowledge comes from. And we invite you to open our eyes to see truly what really matters in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first thing you can jot down is this. If you're having a conversation and someone's like, well, science disproves God, you can really continue the conversation by asking a question. You can say this, can't science and God work together? Uh, I've been really big on getting you to ask questions to the other person. Don't just fire off 10 Bible verses at them, you know. Uh, don't just shut down the conversation. And as I've had conversations with people about topics, I've seen them right before my very eyes say, I was talking to someone and then I said this. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute. Then the conversation was over. Maybe I should have asked a question first. One of the biggest realizations you can have is if you want to have a great spiritual conversation, don't hit them over the head with the Bible. Ask them what they think. Ask them what they believe and start to unearth some of their presuppositions. So say this, can't science and God work together? Let them answer. Let them answer. You're trying to take this idea that it's either or, and you're trying to bring it back together and to say, well, we can really be both rational and religious, can't we? That's what you're throwing out there for conversation. Um, the truth is you can be rational and religious. You don't have to pick one. They're perfectly compatible. Uh, how do we establish this? Well, take, for example, the founding fathers of the scientific movement. They saw no conflict. Science came from religious people, or at least in, its, in the movement that we see it uh, in today. Um, a guy named, uh, I forget his, what was his first name, we'll put the samples quote up there. Um, uh, Kenneth, that's his name. Kenneth Samples wrote a great book called Without a Doubt. Here's what he said. Modern science was born in a cradle of Christianity. Not only were virtually all the founding fathers of science devout Christians, including Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, Boyle, and Pascal, but the Christian worldview provided a basis for science to emerge and flourish. Can't science and God work together? You know, I, I think science actually was built on a Christian worldview, and I think actually you can show that throughout history other religious worldviews didn't have the fundamentals to actually lead to a scientific rational movement. It was the Christian worldview that provided the foundation. Alan Sandage was the greatest observational cosmologist in the world. In 1985, he went to a conference on science and religion. He shocked everyone because people assumed he was heading there to be with the doubters and not the believers in religion and faith. He got up and he announced that he had become a Christian at the age of 50. Everyone in the conference was aghast. He said this, 
It was my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. It was only through the supernatural that I could understand the mystery of existence. Hey, can't science and God work together? Don't we see that today with brilliant people who have faith and reason? And haven't we seen through history that it was on the foundation of the Christian worldview that all of the scientific revolution was actually built? Can't science and God work together? And then, you know, you can push back and say this. Hey, I, have, I believe faith and reason go hand in hand. So you've asked a question, you've listened to them, you've kind of interacted with it, but then you can go on record, you can make a statement, and I'd recommend you say this, I believe faith and reason go hand in hand. I don't have to check my brain at the door to come to church. That's not what the Bible requires of me. Faith and reason can go hand in hand. Do you see what you're trying to do? You're trying to bring together what people around you are trying to separate. I believe faith and reason can go hand in hand. In fact, I think I'm rational because God is intelligent and he made me to be like him. That's why I'm rational to begin with, because I'm made in God's image. Where would we go in the Bible? Let's say that you're having a great conversation. Let's say the person is actually open. Hey, can I share something with you? I'd recommend telling them about Solomon. You know, when it comes to being a smart person and a person who believes in God, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And in 1 Kings 4, verse 29, we get a record of Solomon's wisdom and his knowledge and understanding. It says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom. Where did it come from again? God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Imagine yourself being in the presence of one of the most brilliant, profound thinkers today on earth. Then put an exponent next to that person's brain and you've got Solomon. God made him wiser than anyone. It says in verse 30, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the people of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than, and now these are like the the thinkers of their day, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. I feel like you should be like, oh. Here, I'll read that again. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and He-Man. E-Man was a great cartoon character in the 80s, but apparently he was also a genius. Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs, he was an artist, were 1,005. So he's musical, he's creative, he's got wisdom. Check out verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. People of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. God gave him knowledge, a mind that would blow you away. And what what did he do? He wrote songs. He wrote proverbs about life and ethics, and he also could describe nature in a way that no one had heard before. Do you see how these things are fused together? And here's the thing, God-given. God gave him this love for understanding. Is that all life is about, though? Is it just that Solomon gets to be the smartest guy alive, and therefore he is actually truly the apex person of all humanity? Actually, no. Reason was not enough to satisfy Solomon, which is why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. We just went through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, and I would recommend that you find that series online. But Solomon's whole, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's thinking about thinking, he's thinking about life, and he's coming to some hard, painful conclusions. 
Basically, his deep understanding of humanity did not end with facts. He wanted to learn about meaning. He wanted to learn about morality. He wanted to learn about heaven. That is the knowledge that truly captivated him. He says in Ecclesiastes 1.16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart uh, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You know what he realized? Knowledge, wisdom, human learning was a dead end. It, it didn't lead him to joy, it didn't lead him to peace, and it certainly didn't give him a window into the next life. So he kept wanting to know more, more, more. And in chapter 2, verse 26, uh, here's what he says. He says, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Wisdom and knowledge Solomon knew came from God. They were God-given and joy could come from God alone. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. What did Solomon realize? He realized that wisdom and knowledge were not the road to joy and to pleasure in this life. God was. And wisdom and knowledge didn't stand alone apart from God or against him. These things are God-given. They're derived from the divine mind. And so in chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God has put limits on what we can and can't know. Because of that, we can't know everything on earth about why things happen, everything in the cosmos about how he made it. God intentionally limits our knowledge of those things, but we're eternal. God wants us to understand far more than how chemicals come together. He wants us to understand eternity. So I believe faith and reason can go hand in hand, and you can point them to Solomon as a man who, in the eyes of humanity, whose mind had no limits. His understanding was as vast as the sand on the sea, and guess what? Solomon knew that that wasn't the path toward joy. That wasn't the path toward life. That wasn't it. He actually wanted to figure out joy that came from God. These things go hand in hand. Solomon models that for us. So you can say, I believe faith and reason go hand in hand. Solomon knew that. And jot this down. I think God wants me to love him with all my mind. God wants me to love him with all my mind. Do you see how you are personalizing this idea, this attempt to bring what you know, your reasoning ability, and to combine it with what? Love for God. Why do we have any attributes at all? Why are we here? Well, it's to know and love and serve God. You're seeing all knowledge and wisdom and understanding as one more avenue through which you can have a loving relationship with the God who made you. Can't science and God work together? Listen to what the other person has to say. And say, hey, I believe faith and reason can go hand in hand. Solomon's a perfect example of that. And then say, you know, I think God wants me to love him with all my mind. God made me not just to think, but to know him. Do you know Puritan scientists would often say that what they were doing was aiming to think God's thoughts after him. They expected to discover laws and patterns in nature, order, not chaos. 
They expected as they carved into the world not to find spiritual things, but to find physical things because God made the world and it truly exists. They were thinking God's thoughts after him. What a wonderful description of science through the lens of faith. And it's important to establish that the Bible is very much pro-knowledge. Yes, faith is believing things that can't be seen. Faith is the understanding of things hoped for. That doesn't mean it's not reasonable or rational, but knowledge is praised in the scripture. Check out Proverbs 2, 1 to 6. We'll put it up on the screen. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding." We are not told to just turn our brains off and to just stop asking questions and to be like, well, you'll never get it with your mind. Uh, Actually, the opposite is true. The Bible is very much pro-knowledge, pro-wisdom, right? In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Know your stuff. Uh, It's it's described there as a treasure hunt that yields tremendous, uh, tremendous treasure. So, okay, hey, can't science and God work together I believe faith and reason go hand in hand. And you know what? God wants me to love him with all my mind. See how you can continue a conversation that maybe just died? If someone just took your faith and was just like, you've got religion, I've got reason, you can start bringing them back together by asking a question and then by stating some fundamentals. All right, well then, what next? It would be great if you had the chance to ask this question. Doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? Doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? This could be a little risky because you're stepping into their world, all right? And and let's face it, maybe you don't know, I don't know, a lot about the scientific understanding that's out there in academia today. So for you to make this challenge to say, doesn't science itself point to a higher knowledge? You're kind of standing on their holy ground expect things to get a little a little more heated if you were to ask this question and it's okay if you feel like you maybe don't know everything about everything and they're going to throw some questions at you that you don't understand that's fine but you can say with confidence science does point to a higher intelligence but just ask them hey don't you think science points to a higher intelligence then i would recommend you take them to creation the very beginning of all things What have we learned scientifically about the origin of the universe? And doesn't that point to a higher intelligence? Stephen Hawking understood this to be true. Here's what he said. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. He was reflecting on the idea that the universe is fine-tuned. Uh, It's officially called the Anthropic Principle. You can look it up if you want more uh, details on this, but there are all sorts of cosmological constants built into the universe as far as the eye can see. Why is gravity this strong and not stronger? Why is the weak force or the strong force this level and not that level? The matter in and of itself can't account for its own calibration. And here's the thing. It was calibrated immediately from the beginning. The Big Bang was a smart bomb. Baby Universe 
wasn't supposed to have a brain if it's just random expansion and the ongoing random interaction of molecules. When you look back to creation, the Big Bang was a smart bomb. And if the uh, theorists are correct, the universe was flying and it was on fire and there was no Home Depot yet. Where did baby universe get all these tools and the design to start creating things uh, like oxygen and carbon and hydrogen from nothing with no schematics? Um, so we can go back to the beginning and say, hey, doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? Stephen Hawking recognized that there truly must be some explanation beyond the matter in and of itself. Jot this down. You can ask this question. Did everything really come from nothing? Did everything really come from nothing? Nothing comes from nothing. Now, if they're somewhat well-read on this, you might start getting into the, the uh, different conversations. You might go down the road of like, well, you know, the universe didn't really have a beginning. It kind of is cycling through. Or maybe there's multiple universes. Um, but none of those theories or explanations remove the reality that there has to be an explanation for the universe or for the multiverse that provides the criteria required for the sudden existence of these things or the ongoing existence of these things. And who or what could qualify as a source of a universe or multiple universes? There's a famous argument called the Kalam cosmological argument that came from a medieval Persian philosopher. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Uh, but here's how it goes. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. This is logic. And there has to be some understanding of from our observations. You know, th this is science saying what we observe to be true. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. By the way, don't let them say, well, then who made God? That actually doesn't fit because this says whatever began to exist has a cause. God has never, ever begun. He just is. So that's why he does not need a cause. Doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? Did everything come from nothing? And here's the thing. Who or what qualifies as capable of producing a universe? Here's what we know. There has to be an intelligence greater than all of the sum of wisdom uh, found in the natural world order. Intelligence. There has to be power, unbelievable power, to fling things throughout the sky, to hyperinflate space. There has to be power beyond any sum of power in the universe. And there has to be a will. Because there was a time when you wasn't. There was a time when the universe wasn't, and there was a point when a willful being, therefore, willed it to happen. In other words, if a universe is bound to come into being, who could hold it back? There must be a will strong enough with a purpose that says suddenly, now. Well, what cause could fit this job requirement of having a mind and power and a will that surpasses all of the sum total of a universe or multiple universes, well, that's where we would say, that's God. Only God qualifies as being capable to bring a universe into existence. Nothing comes from nothing. That seems like a pretty obvious common sense thing to say. Uh, you can say it with confidence, say nothing comes from nothing, and that points to something that transcends everything having to lead to the existence of everything. 
Did everything come from nothing? And then let's say it did. Let's say that, you know, boom, it just somehow self-created. Uh, well, then jot this down. How is everything so randomly complex? Where did the design come from? I mean, if it, boom, it sprang into being. Where did the design, where did the intelligence come from? Here's an illustration I've liked to use before. I'd like to say this. Let's say that you are really into Legos. Anybody really into Legos? Hold your hand up if when you were a kid you liked Legos. I like Legos. Uh, here's a picture of one of the biggest Lego things you can build. It's the Lego Titanic. Uh, 9,000 pieces. 9,000 pieces with a, quite an instruction manual. If you want to build the Lego Titanic, you need pieces, you need instructions, and somebody had to design all of it. It's a fine-tuned thing you are putting together. Let's say you go on Amazon and you order the Lego Titanic. Or let's say you actually want to go bigger. Let's say that you order the Lego Universe. You want to rebuild the whole cosmos using Legos, and you spend a fortune on this. And then this big box comes like as big as your driveway and you run out there and you're so excited and you're like <sighs> and then you open it up and it's an empty box with a note. And the note says the first universe came from nothing and therefore your Lego universe will come from nothing. Good luck. Would you return it? Would you start shaking the box, expecting all the pieces to suddenly randomly manifest themselves? And then, would you just allow nature to take its course? Maybe provide motion and heat, you know, uh, to get it to start forming? It's a ludicrous thought. Uh, the original universe didn't come from nothing without a design. And your Lego universe, oh boy, it's not going to come from nothing and it's not going to uh, assemble itself alone. That's just a creative way to say, hey, how is everything so randomly complex without God? And then jot this down. These are all questions you can ask to keep the conversation going. Aren't we aware of higher forms of knowledge? Are we aware of higher forms of knowledge? Doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? Did everything really come from nothing? How is everything so randomly complex? And are we aware of higher forms of knowledge? You're trying to point out that while Scientific, natural, physical knowledge is of value. Why would we make that the crown? Why would we make that the top? Why would we make that the foundation on which we build everything? Who decided that natural knowledge that's from the senses, observe, observations, lab-tested, repeatable things, who decided that is the source, the authority of understanding? The fact is we're capable of abstract thinking and reasoning that transcends the matter. Mathematics. Math comes from something that is not physical. Uh, it comes from a mind that takes physical things and does things with matter that the matter can't account for. There's no such physical thing as 3 or 8 or the square root of 25. You can't show me in a lab what that is because it's the mind doing things with the matter that transcends the matter entirely. Uh, math doesn't exist. It's it's, a, it's a, a mental frame of understanding things found in matter, but the math used to discern those patterns is not material. We know there are higher forms of understanding and knowledge, and we use them freely. Language, you know, language is very important. 
Uh, there's nothing material that makes this a stage. What is it? How do we assign this word to it in multiple different languages? It's an understanding of things that includes a description or a name, which is, by the way, what Adam did from the beginning, a naming and a categorization that transcends the matter and captures things that are descriptive of material objects, but it transcends them as well, especially when you're naming things like love or, or sorrow or grief. There's nothing in a lab that can show you that. So language, logic, uh, logical propositions following a, now you have the mind reflecting on its own cohesion. Um, that is higher order thinking. And then what about morality, moral reasoning? Was that right? Was that wrong? Um, a good question to ask somebody is, don't you need morality to do science? And they'll be like, no, it's all about knowledge. And it's like, okay, but what's to stop a researcher from falsely reporting on their information to get more notoriety? Don't you need a moral code to make sure the science is being done correctly? And the answer is you do. You need a higher form of reasoning. You need moral reasoning to protect the physical understanding of the universe. Without it, it would all fall apart. And then what about the meaning of life? Reflecting on purpose. We have no reason to place scientific knowledge of the physical world at the top of the knowledge pyramid. Actually, it seems like the abstract forms of knowledge are more advanced and more valuable, doesn't it? It seems like there are higher forms of thinking that draw from the physical world, uh, but I think at the top of the knowledge mountain, the things that could be known that are most valuable is knowledge of God. I think knowing God is the greatest thing we could ever know. Spiritual knowledge is truly at the top of understanding things. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul takes some time to talk about the wisdom of the world, and he combines it with an understanding and reflection on spiritual knowledge. Here's what it says. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and get this, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It goes on to say in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you understand what's being said here? There's a reason why God is not through the wisdom, through the learning, through the, the facts of the world leading you to him and to everything that is truly life-giving. It's because in the wisdom of the world, we didn't know him. So he put it in foolishness. He does it on purpose. He wants to thwart the wisdom of the world and the knowledge of those who are learned. Why? Because that's not a path to him. Uh, he wants to bury it up in foolishness because he's creating a people for himself who know him, uh, and that is the highest form of knowledge. Uh, we don't have this on the screen, but Paul is clear to go on in chapter 2, verse 12, to say, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. 
And I love verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That circles right back to what Stephen Hawking was after. How do we find the mind of God? And um, God is telling us in 1 Corinthians, I'm not bearing it in the wisdom of man. I'm revealing it by my spirit. Have you ever considered that perhaps spiritual knowledge, knowledge of God, is not settling for less, as if there's more waiting for you at Cambridge, but perhaps there's more waiting for you, and God has just put it in very unlikely places because he wants you to find it like a hidden treasure. So, number one, can science and God work together? I believe reason and faith go hand in hand. God wants me to love him with all my mind. Number two, doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? Did everything come from nothing? How is everything so randomly complex? And aren't we aware of higher forms of knowledge? Perhaps maybe even spiritual knowledge is the highest form of knowledge. And then number three, just get personal. Do you know God personally? Maybe you like to read a lot, you know, but do you know God? What a question that is. Do you know God I'll ask this of everybody in the room. I, I don't know what your history is or what your learning is. Maybe you've got multiple PhDs, you know, but do you know God? And I don't mean like the periodic table. I'm not saying do you know about God. I'm saying do you know God? And if not, do you want to know God? And if he has made a way for you to know him wouldn't that be greater than the sum of all the things you could know about the physical world? Knowing God, do you know him? Knowing God is spiritual knowledge, it's personal. Jot this down, you can say, I believe creation reveals that God is true and wise. People might feel like they're, well, how can we know God? I mean, there's really no way to know God. Sure, I would want to know God, but I know that we can't know God. Well, Romans 1 gives us some, some clarity on this. And in Romans 1, verses 19 to 20. We'll put that up on the screen. Here's what it says. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The truth is that creation declares the glory of God. You can know just by looking at nature and creation, the wonder, the beauty, the intelligence, even at the, at, the, at the cellular level, the intelligence, you can say there must be a God, an intelligent, powerful, willful God who made this universe for a purpose. There must be a God. But it says in the book of Romans, people take that God's revealing himself in nature and they suppress it. They dunk it. They, they refuse it. There's a wrestling match about knowing God. But you can know God, even just through nature. The, the laws, the patterns, the elements, the building blocks, the beauty, the artistry. You can know God. Well, then how can I know God personally? Well, jot this down. I believe Jesus is the full and final wisdom of God. General revelation is God showing you the basics. Special revelation is him telling you the specifics. You're right. God does have to disclose himself. But look, we can make an appeal based on a reasonable case that God provides in Scripture. We can actually know, even though it's foolishness in the eyes of the world, that the gospel is true. In fact, check out Acts 1-3. Here's what it says in Acts 1-3. It says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus proved that he rose from the grave. 
And you can make the most compelling case that history records, both inside the Bible and out, that Jesus rose from the grave and transformed history forever. Uh, there's many ways that we can establish that rationally. Um, and what about Acts 26, 24 to 29? The Apostle Paul was destroying the church. The thought of Jesus being a risen Messiah was the ultimate foolishness to him. Then Christ appeared to him and convinced him. The chief antagonist of Christianity in the first century convinced him that it's true. Now Paul's on trial for his life. He's willing to die because he now believes this. And check out what he says at his own trial. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that's a Roman official, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. That's how you feel today, right? When you tell people you're a Christian, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You see how rational and composed and confident he was? People were telling him he was crazy, and he's like, none of this has been done in a corner. And in fact, I think the king is well aware that these things took place. And then he was so bold as to ask the king of that area, are you ready to believe? I love his confidence. And I want you, at the end of this sermon, before we take some questions, I want you to feel more confident that you can have conversations even in this area, even if you feel like you would be so far underwater, maybe a lot of what I've shared today has made you feel like it's, you know, it's like very confusing. The principles that I've shared with you of keeping the conversation going are actually quite simple. You are able to talk even about these matters with anybody. You can ask these questions. Can't science and God work together? I mean, Faith and reason can go hand in hand, and God wants me to love him with all my mind. I'm not just turning that off. Doesn't science point to a higher intelligence? I mean, really, did everything come from nothing? How is everything so rationally complex? Aren't we aware of higher forms of knowledge? You can have this conversation with people. You can go to these verses in 1 Corinthians. You can tell people about Solomon. You can say then, do you know God personally? I mean, you can ask people that. And you can tell them that creation in Christ reveal God to us. And guess what? There were people in the first century who didn't believe it, and then they did, and they gave a reasonable defense for their faith, just like you can too. Wow. Well, I hope you feel challenged. I hope you feel encouraged, and I hope you feel motivated to have spiritual conversations with people this week. Well, now I want to give you a voice, whether you're online or whether you're here in person. You maybe have questions of faith. Maybe people in your lives have questions of faith. And I'm going to give you a chance to stand up and ask your question. Joe, I'm going to make you my runner today. Come on, Joe. You got good shoes on. You just have to put your hand up, and then Joe's going to make his way to you, and he's going to go ahead and get your question on the mic so people can hear it uh, if they're online. Go ahead, put your hand up. All right, please stand. Oh, please stand. <laughs> this is from my son in Florida, and he says, if scientists debate that there is 85 to 95 percent chance of life existing on other planets or in other systems, how does that square with what we're taught in the Bible, and how do we admit that could be true without it being mentioned? 
Thank you, Vince. I appreciate that question. The question is, if scientists debate 80 to 90% that there could be, is maybe life on other planets, does that go against what the Bible teaches and how can we explain that reality? That's the question, right? Um, the Bible doesn't discount the idea that there could be life on other planets. Um, so nowhere in the Bible does it say there isn't life anywhere else. So that's, I guess, an open possibility. Um, I'd be curious to know where he got that stat, 80 to 90% chance that there's life somewhere else. Uh, I'm not familiar with where that statistic comes from. Um, but I think given what we, what we understand about the conditions necessary for life, um, I think it's actually pretty scientifically verifiable that life getting started in this universe without a divine hand is statistically impossible. So life getting started in this universe anywhere without a divine hand is statistically impossible. The matter doesn't have the mind to do it. It is so mathematically impossible for life in its simplest form of one living cell to just do that all by itself. If there is life anywhere else in the universe, it was also brought about by a divine hand. And I can prove that not just biblically, but scientifically, mathematically. Thank you, Vince. I appreciate your question. All right, next. Hi. Uh, not, a, uh, not a question, but a comment. When you go back to the first second of creation after the Big Bang, science breaks down. There is no science at the Big Bang. So for there to be a Big Bang, it's a faith statement. That's a good point. In the beginning, um, according to the prevailing theories right now, there cannot be a scientific explanation for the emergence of the universe. Science, as we understand it, is when the laws uh, of nature are functioning, when the forces and the constants have been established so that the world can be observed, it's not chaos, uh, and in addition, it has to be intelligible. It has to be created in such a way that we can track with it and understand sequences and patterns. That's where science comes from. So his point is from the very beginning, and it's not just the first second, it's the first fraction of a second. That was not a scientific event. Uh, it, something created an intelligence-imposed will upon matter. There was no, gravity alone didn't do that. Gravity wasn't even there yet, nor was time, nor was space. Uh, it's a smart bomb. There was a will and an intelligence acting on the matter. Uh, that's the point that he's making. And that's a really great point to bring up to somebody who's trying to figure out the origin of the universe. All right, great. Who's got another one? This side of the room is shining. There we go. We've got a hand up over there. All right. You're going to get your steps in today, Joe. <laughs> he's going to burn off those brats that he's going to eat later today. All right, go ahead. What do you say about people who ask about carbon dating and how the Bible timeline doesn't match up to science's carbon dating of when things began and how long ago things occurred? Yeah, it's a good question. The age of the earth, how old are things? Um, I think that within the scientific community, they keep making revisions. It's older and then it's older and then it's older. Uh, everyone's trying to figure that out. So I don't think that that debate in and of itself is going to raise anybody's hand. Therefore, science wins. Therefore, the Bible wins. Um, uh, everybody walks upon the crime scene of the bones of the dinosaurs, and we have to all come up with an explanation for how they got there, right? Um, and I just think you're not going to get to any definitive answer uh, talking about the age of the earth or carbon dating or things like that. I think if you just take a few steps earlier and say, where did carbon come from? 
um, you're going to win that every time. Where did carbon come from? Because uh, baby universe couldn't have created it in a fraction of a second with no brain. It just couldn't happen. And, and carbon is pretty essential to life, as is oxygen. Uh, helium and oxygen are the two most prevalent elements in the universe, right? Where did they come from? So before we try and figure out how old these things are, let's take a step back and say, yeah, but where did they come from? You'll win that every time. And it's not about winning it. It's just about you will have the far more compelling case that a divine being had to do that. Yeah, yeah. All right, another question. There we go. Hi. What do you say to people who discount the biblical uh, narrative of creation but say that... Uh, God chose to use evolution as a way to bring about. Yeah, so science shows evolution to be true. Therefore, the biblical account is just not accurate. Um, I would say that you could, uh, I'm not up to date on this. I could do a little more research, but uh, fossil record does not verify uh, the evolutionary theory. Uh, they came up with more and more and more and more and more evidence that there was a sudden emergence of them, sudden extinction of them. You do not see in nature a pattern of simple thing, then more simple thing, then greater thing. Um, you can't find evidence for that in the fossil record. Um, therefore, there's a more compelling case that that's not what happened. And then what I would say is the biblical account, um, of all the world religions, the biblical account is the only one that actually perfectly ties into what we know about the beginning of the universe today. There was a beginning. Uh, until the 1920s, the brightest minds on earth, including Einstein, did not think the universe had a beginning. It never started. They were more with Aristotle and saying it's just always existed. Uh-oh, Edwin Hubble with his telescope sees something called a redshift, and he comes in one day and says, the universe is going like this, all of it. Um, therefore, if you reverse time, it had to actually start. And Einstein called that irritating. The thought of a universe that begins was irritating as, as of the 1920s. They've had to revise their understanding of the universe. Genesis had that cosmological puzzle solved in chapter 1. So we knew the universe began. They didn't. They're still fighting against that reality, trying to figure out if there's any way they could show that the universe didn't start. Uh, they can't do it. They just can't do it. And whatever they talk about, whether it's, you know, the quantum realm or multiple universes, the thing, they always have to, you have to get to the point where they're starting with nothing. Okay, they can't start with a quantum vacuum full of energy. They actually have to start with nothing. They can't do that. They won't do that. They always start with something. There was a famous interview with Larry King and Stephen Hawking, because Stephen Hawking is trying to establish that, well, there was like practically nothing in the beginning, and the universe came from that. And then Larry King said, well, who made the nothing? And the idea is, if you're describing the nothing as something, that had to come from somewhere as well. They just can't start with nothing. They won't do it, because then they have to bring in a power greater than all the forces in all the worlds. All right, I think we have time for one more. Who's got one? Do we have any online? No. Online people, do you have questions? All right, one more. Who's got one more question? I hope this is uh, encouraging you to be more confident in having spiritual conversations. All right, we got one last question over here. All right. Well, you got to get on the microphone or the people online won't be able to hear you. you Sorry. <laughs> How does the wisdom and knowledge of God lead you to joy? How do you explain that? Now, that is a million-dollar question. How does the wisdom and knowledge of God lead to joy? That was the, the premise of everything I was driving toward, is while physical, scientific knowledge is important, 
Uh, it derives from being made in God's image. It derives from a universe that is created by a God to be intelligible. We can understand it. That's God-given. But that's not the fundamental reason we're here. And Solomon told us that's a dead end. That won't lead you to joy. That won't lead you to hope. It certainly won't get you ready for the next world. That's why uh, physical understanding, and this is also true of technological understanding, it's just one form of learning, even artificial intelligence. It's going to be one form of learning that's all meant to aim you to the source of everything that can be known. And that is from the divine mind. When you understand who God is and you know him personally, there's a joy in that because you know that he created you to be like him, to know him, to love him, to learn to love other people, to make the world a better place so that you can spend eternity in his glorious presence, forgiven of sin, freed from shame. That, I, that knowing that is what knowing anything is truly all about. Man, if this life was just one big pop quiz and we had to get all the physical answers right or we couldn't go to heaven, we would all be stuck. I mean, there's just no hope. Uh, but knowing God, he's made a way for each one of us to make that happen. Hey, maybe your question didn't get answered. I'm going to be down front at the end and I will answer your question. Online people, go ahead and send them in. But let's invite the worship team back up here. We'll pray and, uh, and then I'll be down front to talk if you didn't get your questions answered. But let's pray. Father, what a, what a delightful time this has been. Uh, I just really want to model for God's people and for people maybe who are here who are skeptical or doubters, uh, maybe more on the intellectual side. They just can't uh, make sense of faith or maybe they're, they've got a little bit more uh, baggage or they're, they're angry with you or uh, I don't know. But I just pray that you would help everybody to know you, to know how to know you, uh, to know that this world has a maker, a good God, who created us for his glory, but this universe fell into sin and disrepair, and you're revealing yourself so that we can have joy uh, and a peace that surpasses understanding. That's what you're offering us. So I pray, Lord, if anybody doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that they would just uh, surrender to you today because you revealed yourself in a compelling fashion after your resurrection. You lived and died and rose again so we can know you. Maybe right, even right now, maybe people want to say, Jesus, I want to know you. God, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to serve you forever. What a wonderful universe you made. And I get to understand it and look up and see a glorious, loving God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.